The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, also has the truth about life and death. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. Happy that you've come to be with us today as we study the Bible with you. Uh, that's what we do here is answer Bible questions. If you're a first-time viewer, uh, that's about all we do on this program is try to answer as many questions as we can. Uh, we talk about a good way to study the Bible, but mostly we just answer your questions. Uh, we get them from either a phone call or the website. And those are listed at the bottom of the screen. Phone number and website, log on, and there's a place there to ask questions. Uh, we take all those questions and put them in our stack and get to them as quickly as we can. It'll be a few weeks, but we'll get there. Uh, so if there's something you've always wondered about, uh, something on your mind about the Bible, or maybe while you're listening today, uh, we'll answer some question, and you'll think, I don't know if I agree with that or not. Give us a call. Tell us to uh, explain further or uh, maybe it stirs some other question for you. So whatever's on your mind about the Bible or maybe your personal life, uh, what's going on in the world, uh, what's the Bible have to say about it, we'll try to find you an answer. So phone number, website on the screen, use those anytime. Uh, let me introduce the two men who helped me answer questions. Toby Levering's back. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, Steve. And Jeff Martin's down there ready to go. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. Glad you're both here. Uh, we got some good ones coming up today, but we always give our viewers a first shot. So here's your trivia question of the day. Uh, name the short tax collector. Not a short tax collector, a short <laughs> tax collector. And uh, the tree that he climbed to see Jesus. So famous story, two-part answer give you the answers at the end of the program, see if you know that little bit of Bible history. Uh, all right, Jeff, we've got the first two questions are about the Bible and how we got it and all that, so you yeah. take the first one and I'll do the second one. Sounds good. <laughs> Viewer wants to know who actually changed the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English. And I'll say first that the wording of this question leads me to believe that the viewer already has some preconceived ideas about this particular subject. Uh, but what I'll do is we'll, we'll look at simply what we know from history. Uh, first of all, if you go back to 1382, you had John Wycliffe, who finished the first ever complete English version or English translation of the Bible. The problem with that is, if you go back to the viewer's question, they asked who, who um, translated it from Hebrew and Greek into English. He translated it from what was called the Latin Vulgate, not directly from the Hebrew and Greek. Uh, then shortly before the Protestant Reformation, we gained more access to the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. And in the 1500s, William Tyndale did the first direct translation of the New Testament from the original language. Kind of an interesting piece of information here is uh, Tyndale was, was burned at the stake by the, the church for his efforts and called a heretic. And actually, Wycliffe, his bones were dug up, and he was burned posthumously by the powers that be, um, both of them for, for these translations or these efforts to translate. Uh, then you can fast forward to 1611, and then you have King James, who put together a group of 
uh, 47 scholars and gave us the King James Version of the Bible, which reigned supreme for a good 250 years. Um, and of course now we have several other direct translations in several different languages, but based on the historical knowledge that we have, uh, I would say the answer to your question would be John, John Wycliffe, or, or more accurately, William Tyndale, uh, did that first translation directly from Hebrew and Greek into English. All righty, thank you, Jeff. Yeah, of course, anybody that knew Hebrew or Greek could, if they had the manuscript, they could yeah. translate it for themselves. But uh, those guys got the first published versions. They put put it all together and got it printed. So, um, good answer. Now, if you were asked another question about the Bible, uh, similar, this one wants to know, how were the books in the Bible chosen to be in the Bible? All right, we've got 66 books in uh, our Bible. There's a few more in the Catholic Bible, but the 66, our viewer wants to know, how'd they get there? Who decided uh, that these were the books that belong in the Bible? Uh, the term for that is canon, C-A-N-O-N, uh, which means a measuring rod or a standard. And so the standard Bible uh, is the canonical books, the, the books of the canon of the Bible. And like I said, there's 66 of them, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament's pretty simple to track the history because as it was written and all that to the Jewish people, rabbis and scholars uh, agreed. Uh, they knew who Elijah was, they knew uh, who Samuel was, and they accepted their writings. And so all the writings of the Old Testament are pretty much agreed on by rabbis and scholars that, yeah, this is an inspired book. This is written by a man of God. Uh, New Testament's a little more complicated. <clears throat> For the first century, at least, uh, and into the second century, uh, it wasn't really settled. Uh, Peter... Uh, recognized that Paul wrote from God. Uh, he talked about Paul's writings and how they were inspired and all that. Uh, books were circulated. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Uh, they shared his letters with other churches. So letters, copies of them were moving around. Uh, the gospel accounts were copied and spread among the churches. <clears throat> so all that was going on. And there were a few books written by people. Uh, that weren't uh, considered inspired. Uh, kind of like novels are written today. They may be interesting and they may have some good history in them, uh, but they're not inspired by God. So first century or century and a half, uh, that wasn't really settled. But then somebody decided, well, we better settle it. So uh, some councils of Christians got together and decided let's agree on which ones are truly inspired and the criteria they used uh, was is the author uh, an apostle or a close acquaintance of an apostle somebody that got it directly from an apostle for instance the gospel of Mark uh, Mark was not an apostle but he hung around with Peter a lot and he got most of his stories from Peter, so he was acceptable. Uh, is the book accepted by Christianity in general? Uh, do most people uh, see this as an inspired book, or does it have some, some doubters about it? Uh, and mainly, does it have a consistent doctrine? Does it agree 
uh, with what we know is true doctrine and the books that we know are inspired and all that. They talked over all that and uh, came to the conclusion that, okay, these 27 are the canon. These are canonical books. So <clears throat> that's the way we see it from an earthly point of view. Now, the thing I left out in all that story is, is God promised to get his word to us, and he oversaw all of that, just like he oversaw the writing of Samuel and Elijah and Paul and Peter, uh, just like they were carried along as they wrote. Uh, he also oversaw the selection or the decisions of the canon. Um, in one sense, a book belonged in Scripture, was canonical of the moment that God inspired it. Uh, the, the moment that God inspired Jude to write the little book of Jude, it belonged in Scripture. Uh, and God made sure that happened. So, yes, we can look at the way men decided and the councils and all of that, uh, but that doesn't mean there's a reason to doubt it because God was overseeing things. So uh, we've got the books we need, uh, contains everything we need uh, for life and godliness is what the Bible itself claims. So that's how we got the Bible, in short. <laughs> and let me add this, that's a, that's a big subject. Yes, uh, one, of, one of our Bible correspondence courses is about how we got the Bible. Uh, so sign up for that and you can get into it in a lot more detail than I've got in just a couple of minutes here. <laughs> All right, okay. Toby. Yeah, a question about the resurrection body. Speaking of big subjects, uh, what, what about those whose organs were donated to others? Uh, there are lots of questions about the resurrection body that we will never understand uh, this side of heaven, I'm convinced. There, the Bible gives us enough uh, clues to, to show us that it's different, that it's unique uh, in some ways, but it's also similar in some ways to the physical body. So uh, if you don't understand the question or the nature of the question, some people become very concerned with um, the nature of the or the the remains of the physical body what happens to that in the resurrection body so this brings up questions about cremation can a person be cremated what about the resurrection body will that harm it in some way or that endanger a christian from not being able to have the resurrection body the answer to that is no but it also brings up questions about organ donation is you know well i, I think the answer to that is that uh that there are many things in the, that you need in the physical body that you certainly won't need in the spiritual body. But the full answer I can't give you because we just don't know the nature and, and how the spiritual body works. Uh, there is a scripture that tells us uh, that it's unique and that it's different and it's very special. Let's look at that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 and following. Paul writes, uh, speaking of the resurrection, and he, he writes here, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, is raised in glory. Sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. He goes on to say, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So what happens to the physical body on earth, uh, how a person dies, 
whether they die naturally and are buried or they're cremated or, or they're killed tragically in, in war or they're uh, drowned or they're, they donate their organs, I don't think that will in any way impact if a person has died in, with their faith fully in Christ. I don't think it will impact their resurrection body at all. God will work all of that out and uh, make the resurrection body, uh, as Paul wrote, raised in power. So I think that uh, uh, will help us, but the Bible just doesn't give us much insight into how all that's going to work. You just have to trust him. All right. Speaking of studying the Bible, let me tell you about a good way to do that. Uh, we enjoy studying the Bible here with you each week and hope we get a few of your questions answered. But we also think the, the Bible, since it's God's Word, is the most important thing we can spend our time studying. So uh, we encourage home Bible study. Uh, we know a lot of our viewers already do that and spend a lot of time in their Bible. Uh, we know some of our viewers just never quite got started or don't know how to keep at it. Uh, so we've got some tools that we think are pretty handy. Uh, here's a set of lessons. There are eight of them, and you see the first two lessons there, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Uh, if you don't know the difference between those or why there's two big parts, this is a good study to start with. That's where it starts and gets you grounded in that and then covers a number of other topics. Once you get through those eight, uh, receive your certificate of graduation from this course. Uh, you can go on to some other ones. And uh, that one down there in the bottom left corner says, How We Got Our Bible, Lesson 1. So uh, that's the course I was talking about. <clears throat> you can begin to study the life of Jesus, the book of Acts, how we got our Bible, lots of interesting uh, Bible studies. And we take care of the postage both ways. We just uh, want you to study the Bible with us. So know your Bible study tools, do that. We've also got some online courses that are a great way to do it a little bit differently if you want. Uh, log on to oneway.worldbibleschool.org. They'll ask you just a few questions and get you signed up and you'll start to get some uh, courses on your digital device that you can study the Bible anytime and don't have to wait for the mail. So uh, all of them great ways to study the Bible. Use a phone number or website, request the print courses, uh, log on to oneway.worldbibleschool.org and get started on that one. All right, looks like Toby's got another one here. Okay. N no, uh, I no, I don't. Oh, <laughs> Jeff. I think it's Jeff. Jeff. Yeah. It's hard, got, uh, hard to keep want, up with all this. Let me borrow yes, your notes, is. Jeff. <laughs> um, a viewer wants to know, do our loved ones who have gone to heaven still have knowledge of us on earth? Uh, this is, is, is a common belief. Uh, it's not uncommon to hear someone say, you know, they're, they're looking down on you. They're watching you from heaven. Uh, so it stands to reason, what does the Bible say about this? Um, one verse that is used more often than not to prove a concept like this is Hebrews 12.1. So let's look at that together. Uh, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So if we take that verse alone, Hebrews 12.1, it seems to say that there are many people, a great cloud of witnesses, who are looking down on us and witnessing us as we run our race in life. Uh, but like any verse, context is important. Uh, and this specific verse starts with the word therefore, which means that we need to pay special attention to what became 
what came before this verse to really truly understand what came after. Since this is the first verse in that chapter, we have to go back to Hebrews 11 to understand what the great cloud of witnesses is referring to. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 11, you see that it's referring to uh, the, the great men who came before us, and it, it talks about who those men are. So that's the great cloud of witnesses. They are the great men of faith. And so what this is showing us is that their faithful example that we know about, and now we can read about in the Bible, should spur on our journey of faith and should make us more faithful. And we can understand this on a, on a, in a personal way, too. When we have someone who is close to us, who we love, who dies, and they were a great pillar of faith, we know that their faith helps us. Uh, their example of faith lends itself to us not being easily entangled in sin, like Hebrews 12 goes on to talk about. Uh, so the Bible doesn't specifically say if they can see us. It's also worth mentioning that uh, it's hard for me to believe that people who are in the presence of the full glory of God, who are in the presence of the creator of the universe, are able to direct their attention from Him to things of earth. Uh, I don't think that that's happening in, in heaven, and I think the Bible is very clear on that too. So I would not be surprised if they weren't preoccupied with the glory of God. Uh, but again, the Bible doesn't tell us. All righty. Uh, I think it's my turn this time. I won't, okay. I won't ask you for okay. now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, question about divorce. Viewer says, if someone is divorced, is the best thing uh, to get back together. Well, you may have heard somebody ask a question sometime and they answered by saying, well, it's complicated. <clears throat> That's my answer to this one. It's complicated. Uh, I wish that uh, divorce and remarriage questions uh, were always just black and white and yes, no, and you ask the question and I can give you uh, the answer quickly. Uh, well, I can't because I don't know all the details. Uh, and even if I did know all the details, sometimes it's hard to come up with what's the best thing to do uh, when a marriage is troubled or divorced. So uh, let me answer it this way. First of all, if the situation is that a couple had a falling out over something, got divorced, uh, then decided to work at it, went to counseling, uh, each one of them changed some of the things that they needed to change to uh, make things better. Uh, and they decide to reunite and get back together and marry again. Uh, is that the best thing? Well, yes, that's the best thing. Uh, saves generations of consequences uh, if a marriage can stay together and be happy and healthy. So uh, if that's the way you're asking it, uh, somebody's got divorced and uh, six months later and should they get back together? Well, yeah, <laughs> that would be best. Uh, but when I say it's complicated, it's because there sometimes there are lots of other complications when somebody has gotten divorced. Uh, perhaps one or both is remarried. Uh, perhaps they have additional children or children with the new, new spouse. Uh, perhaps they've changed lifestyles completely and uh, have become a Christian. Uh, all kinds of things have changed. And with all of those complications, with me not knowing them, uh, I can't sit here and say, well, yeah, it would be good if they go back to their original partner. Uh, some people teach that. Uh, I can't imagine that would 
meet the approval of Jesus, but uh, some people think they know all the answers. Uh, I'm just saying there are complications sometimes that make getting back together not the best idea maybe. Uh, secondly, I'd say there's a question about what are the original reason for the divorce. Uh, if it was not just a falling out, uh, but it was an abusive situation, uh, sexually, emotionally, physically, uh, an addictive behavior that hasn't been corrected, uh, a lot of those things would mean getting back together might not be the best thing, it might not be the safest thing, it might not be safe for the children. Uh, so there's a lot of complications that uh, a good Christian counselor would have to help you think through uh, if you're thinking about the best thing to do is get back together with someone. So uh, yeah, given the, the basics, the, the simple case that I defined at first, well yeah, it's best to get back together. Uh, God doesn't like divorce. In fact, he hates divorce uh, because of the consequences that it causes. Uh, he wants one man and one woman married to stay together for life. That's best for them. That's best for their children. That's best for society. Uh, that's the way the world works best. So um, complicated question. I hope some of those thoughts help you think through it a little bit. Let me take a second and invite you to visit a Church of Christ. Uh, this program, if you've noticed, this opening and closing is sponsored by the Churches of Christ and uh, is kept on the air by the Churches of Christ. We like to mention a few of them each week. Uh, today, let's talk about a couple in Missouri. Uh, the Watermill Church of Christ in uh, Springfield is our partner there. Uh, Mansfield, Missouri, just a little bit east of uh, Springfield, and the Greenfield Church also helps us in the Springfield market. So if you're looking for a church home uh, to live in that area, uh, drop in on one of them and uh, tell them you heard about them and I'll know your Bible. Whatever area you live in, whatever market you're watching in, Church of Christ is probably near you. Uh, tell them you watch this program and appreciate uh, them helping provide it. So visit us sometime with the Church of Christ. Now it's Toby's turn. Okay. <laughs> now we have a question about backsliding. Is there really such a thing as a backslider? Uh, scripturally speaking, yes. As mentioned, the term backslider is used depending on the translation, but the English standard uh, uh, translation has several places where it's used. Proverbs 14, 14. It won't be on your screen, but you can look it up. Um, it says, the backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, uh, and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. Uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote uh, in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 5, this people has turned away in perpetual backsliding. So backsliding is just uh, the idea that someone who is going the wrong way spiritually, they are regressing instead of progressing. In, in your making progress in your spiritual journey with the Lord, uh, you should be moving forward. You should be moving away from evil, away from sin, and toward the Lord himself. A backslider is one who seems to not be making any progress or moving backwards. Uh, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus put it this way, though he didn't use the term specifically backslider. He, used the, he talked about the principle. He said, therefore, uh, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Talking about, you know, the idea of becoming a Christian and entering in the kingdom is a commitment. So don't make that commitment, but be looking backward toward your former way of life and the way that you used to live. Backsliding can take uh, 
manifest in, in different ways. It can be a person who uh, maybe once was worshiping God and interacting with the church and they, they stop attending, they stop going. Uh, a backslider can be someone who walks away from their commitments from ministry or service or their family. A backslider can be one who falls back into old sinful habits and old sinful ways. So it can look different for you know, different people, but we kind of know it when we see it. Uh, that a person is moving backward, uh, moving away from Christ rather than toward him. Uh, in fact, Scripture in the New Testament warns several places against backsliding. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4, 1, the Apostle Paul writes to the preacher Timothy, uh, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, by devoting themselves to, de to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. The writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 3.12, take, take care, brothers, lest any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So, yes, the term backsliding is there. The warnings against backsliding are there, which remind us that we can't have our faith taken from us, but we can choose to give it up. Usually that's not always a one decision. It's usually many decisions uh, to turn away from the living God. Let's look at one final scripture, which is 1 John 1, 6 and 7. The Apostle John wrote, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So we, we need to be aware, mindful of it and always keep walking with the Lord and making progress in him. Hope that helps you. All right. Jeff, we always give this question to the ex-Marine on the panel. <laughs> All right, that works. The viewer wants to know, is pledging allegiance to the flag right or wrong for a Christian? Uh, good question. And there are many Christians who read certain passages, and because of their interpretation of these passages, they won't have anything to do with a promise or a pledge uh, past what is in the Bible, including swearing on the Bible in court, or, or in this case, like the viewer said, pledging allegiance to the flag. Uh, one of the verses used to prove this is in Matthew 5.34. Let's look at that. It says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Uh, okay, and if you read that verse by itself, it seems very clear. Uh, but as Christians, we're also supposed to submit to authorities. Let's look at Titus 3, verse 1. It says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Uh, so where, as a Christian, do we draw the line? Uh, and Christians should draw the line when they're pledging, the thing that they're pledging allegiance to or the thing that they're submitting to takes a place that belongs to God or requires that Christian to do something that is against God or sinful. Uh, if you look at our Pledge of Allegiance in the United States, it contains the phrase, under God. There's a reason for that. The founders of our nation were believers. They took service to God seriously. They wanted God to bless this nation, but they understood that God was to be feared and revered above a nation that was made by men. So, no, I see no problem uh, pledging allegiance to the flag. Okay. I'd agree. I don't think there's any problem, but I know people have sure. conscientious objection to pledging allegiance to anything but God. But like you say, 
the pledge is under God, That's so right. <laughs> it covers it. All right, let's make sure we get a trivia question answered about a little guy in the New Testament. He was a tax collector, and he was so short he couldn't see over the crowd, so he had to climb a tree. His name was Zacchaeus. He climbed a sycamore tree. You can read that story in Luke chapter 19, one of a uh, good kid story there. We're glad that you've been with us today. We're going to come back next week and answer some more questions. Until then, we hope you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.